reaching up, reaching over, and reaching out. We are New Life Christian Fellowship. For service times, articles, or recordings of our weekly messages, please visit us online at www.nlcfchurch.org. This message is brought to you by Kevin Weeb. We are looking at a number of chapters in this book. We'll be reading selected passages, looking at the various enemies that they faced in this book. So thus far we have, we have seen that they returned to Jerusalem from their time in captivity. Cyrus, the king of Persia, had been inspired by God himself to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem and sent the Jews back to Jerusalem to begin rebuilding. They began celebrating some of the feasts that were um, in the book of the law, as we looked at in our first message, calling them to remember where they came from. They also laid the foundation of the temple as, uh, as Bill looked at last time, and the despair that the elders felt as they saw the foundation. They remembered the former glory of Solomon's temple, and then they saw the foundation, and it looked much smaller and less grand than what they remembered, and they despaired at what they were working on. Now, people of Ezra, the people um, of Jerusalem, sorry, led by Ezra, faced a great many enemies. Before we dive into our passage, I want to begin with a story. A, A lady named Mary Marty retells a parable from the Eye of the Needle newsletter. A holy man was engaged in his morning meditation under a tree whose roots stretched out over the riverbank. During his meditation, he noticed that the river was rising and a scorpion caught in the roots was about to drown. He crawled out onto the roots and reached down to free the scorpion, but every time he did so, the scorpion struck back at him. An observer came along and said to the holy man, Don't you know that's a scorpion and it's in the nature of the scorpion to want to sting? To which the holy man replied, That may well be, but it is my nature to save. And must I change my nature because the scorpion does not change its nature? How do we respond when we face enemies in our lives? God had allowed Ezra and the people of Israel to return to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. And for years, they faced enemies interfering with this work. Let's take a look. We'll start with the first few verses of chapter 4. Chapter 4, verses 1 to 7 is what we will begin with. The enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the exiles were rebuilding a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel. So they approached Zerubbabel and other leaders and said, Let us build with you, for we worship your God just as you do. We have sacrificed to him ever since King Azarhadon of Assyria brought us here. But Zerubbabel... Jeshua and the other leaders of Israel replied, You may have no part in this work. We alone will build the temple for the Lord, the God of Israel, just as King Cyrus of Persia commanded us. 
Then the local residents tried to discourage and frighten the people of Judah to keep them from their work. They bribed agents to work against them and to frustrate their plans. This went on during the reign of King Cyrus of Persia and lasted until King Darius of Persia took the throne. That's a long time for them to face this. Years later, when Xerxes began his reign, the enemies of Judah wrote a letter of accusation against the people of Judah and Jerusalem. Even later, during the reign of King Artaxerxes of Persia, the enemies of Judah, led by uh, Bishlam, Mithridash, and Tabil, sent a letter to Artaxerxes in the Aramaic language, and it was translated for the king. I'm not going to read that letter, but they sent letters to the king accusing the people of... um, and accusing Jerusalem of of working against the empire. Um, They reminded the king that this was a city that for years had worked against the kings of the area, which, you know, had, had truth in it. And so the kings stopped the work of the temple because it was Cyrus who had begun the work, and now this was several kings later. Now, later on in verses 17 to 24, this is the reply from King Artaxerxes to Rehum, the governor, Shimshay, the court secretary, and their colleagues living in Samaria and throughout the province west of the Euphrates River. Greetings. The letter you sent has been translated and read to me. I ordered a search of the records and have found that Jerusalem has indeed been a hotbed of insurrection against many kings. In fact, rebellion and revolt are normal there. Powerful kings have ruled over Jerusalem and the entire province west of the Euphrates River, receiving tribute, customs, and tolls. Therefore, issue orders to have these men stop their work. That city must not rebuild, except at my express command. Be diligent and don't neglect this matter, for we must not permit the situation to harm the king's interests. When this letter from King Artaxerxes was read to Rehem, Shimshay, and their colleagues, they hurried to Jerusalem, then with a show of strength, they forced the Jews to stop building. So the work on the temple of God in Jerusalem had stopped, and it remained at a standstill until the second year of the reign of King Darius of Persia. People faced great opposition as they worked from one king to the next. Enemy after enemy after enemy tried to derail their work until they were successful simply by telling this king something of the ancient past. This city was a hotbed of insurrection. Look at the history for yourself. And the king looks it up and, huh, sure enough, this, this was part of this city's history. Let's not risk this happening again there. But forgetting to mention that it was a king himself who had ordered the temple to be built. Then in chapter 5, some years had gone by. God had commanded two prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, to speak to the people. Both of these are books in the Minor Prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, where they prophesied to the people of Israel during this time, saying to them, My temple has yet to be rebuilt, but you live in fine houses. Why? Why have you stopped this work? 
So we read in Ezra chapter 5, verses 1 to, time, 1 to 5. At that time, the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, son of Edo, prophesied to the Jews in Judah and Jerusalem. They prophesied in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, son of Jehozadak, responded by starting again to rebuild the temple of God in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them and helped them. But Tatanai, governor of the province west of the Euphrates River, and Shethar, Bozani, and their colleagues soon arrived in Jerusalem and asked, Who gave you permission to rebuild this temple and restore this structure? They also asked for the names of all the men working on the temple. But because their God was watching over them, the leaders of the Jews were not prevented from building until a report was sent to Darius, and he returned his decision. Now I remind you for a moment about King Darius. King Darius is mentioned in the book of Daniel. So while all of this is happening in Jerusalem with the people led by Ezra, there's other things happening in Babylon with this Persian King Darius, with Daniel. Do you remember the story of Daniel in the lion's den? That was under the reign of King Darius, where God is at work in the life of King Darius, showing him the power of God. Same king, same time frame, right? Like this is the same era. It's it's not a different king. This is King Darius that Daniel was serving under over there while the people of God were rebuilding the temple here in Jerusalem. So King Darius issued orders that a search be made in the Babylonian archives, which were stored in the treasury. But it was at the fortress at Ekbatana in the province of Media that a scroll was found. This is what it said. Memorandum. In the first year of King Cyrus's reign, a decree was sent out concerning the temple of God at Jerusalem. Let the temple be rebuilt on the site where the Jews used to offer their sacrifices, using the original foundations. Its height will be 90 feet and its width will be 90 feet Every three layers of specially prepared stones will be topped by a layer of timber. All expenses will be paid by the royal treasury. Furthermore, the gold and silver cups, which were taken to Babylon by Nebuchadnezzar from the temple of God in Jerusalem, must be returned to Jerusalem and put back where they belong. Let them be taken back to the temple of God. So King Darius sent this message. Now therefore, Tatane, governor of the province west of the Euphrates River, and Shethar Bozanay, and your colleagues and other officials west of the Euphrates River, stay away from there. Do not disturb the construction of the temple of God. Let it be rebuilt on its original site, and do not hinder the governor of Judah and the elders of the Jews in their work. Moreover, I hereby decree that you are to help these elders of the Jews as they rebuild this temple of God. You must pay the full construction costs without delay, from my taxes collected in the province west of the Euphrates River so that the work will not be interrupted. Give the priests in Jerusalem whatever is needed in the way of young bulls, rams, and male lambs for the burnt offerings presented to the God of heaven. And without fail, provide them with as much wheat, salt, wine, and olive oil as they need each day. Then they will be able to offer acceptable sacrifices to the God of heaven and pray for the welfare of the king and his sons. Those who violate this decree in any way will have a beam pulled from their house. Then they will be lifted up and impaled on it, and their house will be reduced to a pile of rubble. 
May the God who has chosen the city of Jerusalem as a place to honor his name destroy any king or nation that violates this command and, destroy this, and destroys this temple. I, Darius, have issued this decree. Let it be obeyed with all diligence. That's quite the change that's going on from having the temple work stopped to King Darius who, who says, okay, we'll search the, the records and they find King Cyrus's decree to have it built. And he says, all right, let the work continue. And then beyond that, he tells these people who were the enemies of the Jews, says, you're going to pay for it. More than paying for the temple, you're going to give sacrifices so that they can offer sacrifices on my behalf. And more than that, you're going to send food so that they don't have to worry about food to eat while they're working on the temple. And if you don't, we're going to pull out a beam from your house so your house collapses and we're going to impale you on that pole. (laughs) Wow, that's pretty uh, threatening. Uh, The ancient world certainly was a brutal place, if nothing else. And so King Darius um, goes a complete 180 on on the policies of the past kings. And I would suspect it had something to do with Daniel's work in the land and, well, God's work through Daniel, revealing himself to, um, to the kings of Babylon and Persia. Excuse me. But for years, we're, we're, remember, we're, we're reading kind of select passages through these chapters about the enemies that the people faced over a span of years. They faced enemies from all sides. And this isn't just like figurative. It was all around in the lands surrounding Jerusalem. There were enemies all around them that wanted to see this fail. God called them to rebuild the temple. And in all the surrounding cities, the governors, the other leaders, they did not want to see this happen. Sometimes the, the enemies that we face They seek to distract us from the mission of God. It's not just them that face enemies, it's us too. This isn't just an ancient problem. This is a modern problem. You also will face enemies that will distract you from the mission of God. There's all kinds of ways that will distract us from this. A great many things that can distract us from this. You know, we, we learn this as parents when we have kids. Um, there was a phrase that we, that we used. We said, distraction is king. <laughs> you know, just have something shiny around, and if they start crying or whining, just, you know, wave something in front of them, and ooh, you know, give them a little toy to play with. Or, um, and then we got things like smartphones or iPads or whatever, and then it's like just... They, they would be distracted. You know, you can easily distract someone from something to, to get 
get their mind off of it. And screens is like the, the easiest way to do that. And we as human beings, it's like an epidemic in our world to get people distracted from anything. Just glue them to a screen. And we are distracted from all kinds of very, very important things just simply through screens. There's a lot of other things that can distract us from the mission we face. Threats of violence, um, offers of ease and comfort. Ah, that was the first one. We'll look at that in a minute. Yeah. Sometimes opposition will disguise itself as helpers. Did you notice that at the beginning of chapter 4? Uh, verses 1 and 2, the enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the exiles were rebuilding a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel. Remember, this is the enemies of Judah. So they approached Zerubbabel and the other leaders and said, let us build with you, for we worship your God just as you do. But they were the enemies. They weren't there to help. They disguised themselves as helpers, but they were the enemies. They were there to put themselves in the midst of what was going on so that they could tear down the work from the inside out. So they could destroy and divide and dismantle what was going on from the inside out. Sometimes opposition will disguise itself as helpers. Have you ever heard that Satan disguised himself as an angel of light? You know? So too, there are times in our lives where those who portray themselves as helpers or portray themselves as those who will solve all our problems. It's actually something that's just simply too good to be true. When the motive behind it or when the the truth of it is not actually help at all. And that's what was going on for Ezra and for the other leaders in this community, for the whole community, is these enemies disguise themselves as helpers. First try to get in by being all friendly, so tear it all down from the inside out. You also face opposition and discouragement from within the assembly. This is also something else we learn from this story. Although this isn't directly um, visible just from the passages we read today, do you remember the message from last week in the passage that Bill read about the despair of the elders? Let's just take a, take a moment and step back and just take a look at this, this passage from chapter 3. Then the people gave a great shout, praising the Lord because the foundation of the Lord's temple had been laid. But many of the older priests, Levites, and other leaders who had seen the first temple wept aloud when they saw the new temple's foundation. The others, however, were shouting for joy. So there were those, the, the older folks in them, the people who saw the old temple, right? Those who saw Solomon's temple prior to it being destroyed. They were weeping when they saw the new temple foundation. Not, not tears of joy,
Sometimes those of us who have been walking with the Lord for a long time compare what is happening now to the things of the past. And we look at the moments of the past with awe and with splendor and we look at it with such grandeur and look at it like, look at what we used to do. Look at what we used to have. Look at the time where we built these big things Do you remember the big temple of Solomon in all of its glory? And rather than appreciating the work that God is doing in these small moments of accomplishment, we whine and complain and lament that it isn't better like the good old days or better like some other thing that we are comparing it to. But you know, God sent the prophet Zechariah to the people during this time, and this is what the Lord had to say to the people in uh, chapter 4, verses 6 to 10 of Zechariah. Then another message came to me from the Lord. Zerubbabel is the one who laid the foundation of this temple, and he will complete it. Then you will know that the Lord of heaven's armies has sent me. Do not despise these small beginnings, for the Lord rejoices to see the work begin, to see the plumb line in Zerubbabel's hand. You see, the older folks in this community were lamenting about this foundation. They were lamenting that it looked so small. But Solomon's temple looked so big. And they're like, what we're doing is just small potatoes compared to how it was in the good old days. And they're like, this is nothing. We're doing nothing. Our temple used to be glorious and now we're settling for this. But God rebukes them. Do not despise these small beginnings. You see, God himself, the Lord is rejoicing to see this work beginning. The Lord himself is rejoicing in it. So then who are we to be lamenting at it? Right? So it was actually this older generation that was a discouragement for the people. And yeah, yeah, sometimes it's really great to remember the good old days. It's really great to remember the wisdom from past generations, and I, I, I value that. But then we have stories like this, where it's actually a hindrance to the community, where God sends a prophet to rebuke them because they're so focused on the good old days that they are despising the work that God is doing in their midst at that moment when the Lord says they should rejoice in it. And it's a discouragement to the work that God is doing here and now because it's not like it was back then. Now, just like this community, you too may face opposition from the world around you. This is uh, pretty pretty obvious, you know. This is a classic. Um, I don't know if it requires um, any kind of training in theology or Bible school education or anything like that. Um, doesn't, Doesn't take... Uh, a genius to know <laughs> that, that in, in, in this story the, they face enemies all around. That's just a, a very plain, plain fact from that. And, and anyone who's 
lived for, for any time at all through a couple years of kindergarten, we'll know that sometimes we face, face difficulties from the people around us. And as Christians, that, that is also true. You will face opposition from the spiritual forces of darkness that are at work. This is important to remember. Sometimes we, we forget who our true enemy is. In these kinds of conversations, when we're talking about enemies in stories like this, we, we look at the people of Israel, the Jews, rebuilding the temple. We see the, the enemies all around them of these other nations. But we forget that the real enemy is actually the spiritual forces of darkness. We forget that all human beings are made in the image of God and we are called to see everyone through that lens. Another reminder in the story is that if you walk a path other than what God desires, you may find opposition from God himself. This isn't exactly um, immediately evident when we look at this story just in the passages of these chapters. But it certainly is when we look at the kind of context of what is going on. And especially when we look at um, some of the supporting books like um, reading through Haggai and Zechariah or when we look at the whole context of the exile where they came from. Let's look at um, Zechariah here. Zechariah 8, uh, 9 to 13. This is what the Lord of Heaven's armies says. Be strong and finish the task. Ever since the laying of the foundation of the temple of the Lord of Heaven's armies, you have heard what the prophets have been saying about completing the building. Before the work on the temple began, there were no jobs and no money to hire people or animals. No traveler was safe from the enemy, for there were enemies on all sides. I had turned everyone against each other. But now I will not treat the remnant of my people as I treated them before, says the Lord of heaven's armies. For I am planting seeds of peace and prosperity among you. The grapevines will be heavy with fruit. The earth will produce its crops and the heavens will release the dew. Once more I will cause the remnant in Judah and Israel to inherit these blessings. Among the other nations, Judah and Israel became symbols of a cursed nation, but no longer. Now I rescue you and make you both a symbol and a source of blessing. So don't be afraid, be strong, and get on with rebuilding the temple. Did you catch that? They were still living with some of the remnants of the punishment that God had placed on them from the the disobedience of generations past. And God says, at the beginning of this building, there was punishment after punishment after punishment after punishment after punishment but no longer. Now the tide is turning. Now you will be blessed. Now your fortunes will be restored. Now I will cause you to inherit these blessings. When we walk away from God's path, We walk into dangerous territory. 
we walk away from the ways that God wants us to behave and we may find ourselves working against God himself. And that, my friends, is a place that none of us should desire to be. When we, we have enough enemies all around, we do not need to make ourselves enemies of the Lord as well. Now, I want to talk about the greatest threat in our lives. You may have thought we have already talked about that with the spiritual forces of darkness, but no. We have yet to mention the greatest, the greatest enemy in your life. The biggest enemy in your life is, in fact, yourself. The greatest threat to your faithful service of God is yourself. Satan is certainly a threat, yep. But Jesus is a much greater threat to Satan than Satan is to Jesus. And if we're following Jesus and walking right beside him, then he's not much of a threat to us either. And so then the question is, will we remain with Jesus or not? This doesn't mean we will not ever suffer. This doesn't mean we will not ever um, face difficulties as we walk with Jesus through a dark and broken world. He may call us to go to places that are just full of brokenness. In fact, I, I, I guarantee you, if you follow Jesus, uh, Jesus went to some pretty dark places to reach some pretty broken people. And then so too, you will follow him to the places where people are broken. You will follow him to the places where there is great darkness, but where you will be asked to bring the light of Christ with you. And that, that's one of the, uh, just as a side note, that's one of the interesting things about holiness that, that changed, right? Like in the, uh, in the Old Testament, all of the laws around uh, holiness was like, okay, we have to stay away from this because it's sinfulness and its dirtiness will infect us. And then we're going to get infected with sin and we'll be unholy and unclean and all of that. Then we have to go through these rituals to get clean again. But when Jesus came, Jesus like changed the whole ball game where he went to these places that were dark and dirty and unclean and he wasn't scared about that at all. He went there and it was, it was like a reversal of that where his holiness was what infected the sinful where his holiness made things clean. And we come into contact with Christ and, and, and it's, it's him that makes us clean. Right? And then that's, that's how it works in the kingdom of God, where we follow Jesus into these places of darkness, these places of despair, these places of pain, and Christ through us, instead of us being infected by all of that, it's Christ's holiness in us, through us, with us, that begins to rub off on others, where it's this whole reversal of what we see happening in like Old Testament law of, of the whole um, like inf- being infected with sin, but rather it's almost like infected with holiness as we come to Christ, right? Like as, people, as we lead others to Christ, then they come into contact with Jesus. They come to Jesus for healing and his holiness comes into them and washes their sin away. Anyway, that's just a whole other side note to all of this. But the greatest threat to any of our service, the greatest enemy any of us face, is ourself. 
Because you can take anything away from you. You can take away your finances, your job, your health, your anything. But nobody can force you to walk away from God. That's a choice nobody can make for you. Nobody can steal your salvation away. Nobody can choose to to make you blaspheme the name of the Lord. Nobody. We can choose faithfulness to God every single time. The greatest threat to our faithfulness is ourself. There's no such thing as the devil made us do it. There's this great story. Um, I talked about this a little bit in, uh, in youth group with some of the youth, so for them it'll be a little bit of a repeat. But in Mark 5, 1 to 10, I'm going to read these verses just to, to make one small point. So they arrived at the other side of the lake in the region of the Gerasenes. When Jesus climbed out of the boat, a man possessed by an evil spirit came out of the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the burial caves and could no longer be restrained, even with chains. Whenever he was put into chains and shackles, as he often was, he snapped the chains from his wrists and smashed the shackles. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Day and night he wandered among the burial caves and in the hills, howling and cutting himself with sharp stones. When Jesus was still standing, still some distance away, the man saw him, ran to meet him, and bowed low before him. With a shriek, he screamed, Why are you interfering with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? In the name of God, I beg you, don't torture me. For Jesus had already said to the spirit, Come out of the man, you evil spirit. Then Jesus demanded, What is your name? And he replied, My name is Legion, because there are many inside of us, or many of us inside this man. Then the evil spirits begged him again and again not to send them to some distant place. And instead, Jesus uh, cast them, cast this, legion of demons into a herd of of pigs that was nearby. What, uh, an an observation in in one book I read that was pointed out, uh, the the author's name was Pierre Gilbert uh, from Winnipeg. But an observation he makes about this story, and I have never looked at it the same, was that this man had demonic powers within him, right? Enough that he could break chains with his bare hands. No matter how many chains they put on him, how many shackles they put on him, he would break the steel with his bare hands. Okay, Nobody could tie this man up, not even with chains. That's a lot of strength. Okay, So this is talking about some crazy amount of power, which is just kind of mind-boggling for us to even wrap our, our heads around. But when it comes to Jesus... Not even a legion of demons could keep this man from walking to Jesus for help. Not even that. Many men tried to subdue him. It said it happened often. They tried to chain him. They tried to shackle him, tie him up. Never worked. Never. Yet he sees Jesus. And that man chose to go to Jesus. And Jesus helped him. 
And they couldn't stop him from doing that. They could not stop him from going to Jesus for help. No matter what our problem is, no matter how big our problem is, no matter what our enemy is, is your enemy Satan himself? Is your enemy a demon? Is your enemy a legion of demons? There's nothing that can stop you from going to Jesus for help. Because that would be a pretty big problem if you asked me a whole legion of demons. That, 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 that's pretty high on the list, right? But you would have a choice whether you go to Jesus for help or not. Do you have a problem with sin? Do you have a particular sin in your life? Are you bringing it to Jesus every day? Every day. Are you going to Christ with this? Because he offers forgiveness. He offers healing. There's nothing that can keep us from Jesus except for our own choice to stay away. Are we listening to the voice of the evil one to stay away or are we choosing to go to Jesus? Are we listening to the enemies all around saying, stop building this temple. Stop building this place of worship. Stop building this house of prayer. Right? Because that's what the temple is. That's what they called it. Jesus comes to the temple, this one that they rebuilt in this story. That was the one that was standing when Jesus came. And he walks into this place and he says, my house will be called a house of prayer. Right? And then in the New Testament, Paul calls us the temple of the Holy Spirit. What are we building in our temples? What are we doing? Are we coming to Jesus? Are we building a place of worship in our lives? Or are we letting the enemy, whatever enemy that is, you pick, the enemies around us in the world, the enemies um, of discouragement, maybe within the church, Maybe even well-meaning people like the elders that were helping them actually rebuild, but just misguided, just thinking back to the good old days and through their own despair were just discouraging and needed a bit of a kick in the pants from Zechariah to say, don't despair, God is at work. Remember, this is all right. Don't despise these small beginnings, right? Maybe that's what you're facing. Maybe it's, maybe it's someone from the outside some non-Christian type of opposition somehow. Maybe it's some kind of spiritual attack. Or maybe it's your own choices that you're fighting against. Whatever it is, let's get back to the work of being places, being people, that worship Jesus. Will you be faithful to the Lord even in the face of opposition? Because we can trust the Lord to help us accomplish everything that he has called us to. Everything that he has called us to. 
2 Peter 1, verse 3 says, By his divine power, God has given us everything we need for living a godly life. For living a godly life. Everything that you need to live a godly life, to do what God has called you to, God has given that to you. He's given you everything that you need for that. And if you don't have what you need for a particular thing, maybe God's not calling you to that. But to live a godly life, you have what you need. We are promised that. Zechariah 4, 6-10. Then he said to me, This is what the Lord says to Zerubbabel. It is not by force, nor by strength, but by my spirit, says the Lord of heaven's armies. Nothing, not even a mighty mountain, will stand in Zerubbabel's way. It will become a level plain before him. And when Zerubbabel sets the final stone of the temple in place, the people will shout, May God bless it. May God bless it. The work we do for the Lord is not some 10-step program. It's not something that we, we outline exactly. Like, yeah, we, we, I, I can tell you about practices that in general will help you grow in the Lord, but it's, 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 it's not going to work unless you submit to and involve God's Spirit in it, right? We can read our Bibles, we can pray, we can come to church, all of that, but unless you let the Holy Spirit in, it's all in vain anyways. Because it is not by might, not by force, not by strength, but by God's Spirit. And thankfully, God's Spirit is there asking, waiting, knocking to be let in. God is not a distant God. Our world is not like the theory of a world that was just set spinning like a top and then, all right, there you go. I made your world. Go enjoy it. See ya. God's involved actively pursuing us waiting for us, involved in the day-to-day matters in our lives. But we will not achieve these things by force or by strength, but by the Spirit of the living God. Just as they would not build the temple by any of those things either. Except by God's Spirit. Romans 8 says this, What shall we say about such wonderful things as these? If God is for us, who can ever be against us? Since he did not spare even his own son, but gave him up for us as well, we won't be able... uh, Sorry. Since he did not spare even his own son, but gave him up for us all, won't he also give us everything else? Who dares accuse us whom God has chosen for his own? No one, for God himself has given us right standing with himself. Who then will condemn us? No one. For Christ Jesus died for us and was raised to life for us, and he is sitting in the place of honor at God's right hand, pleading for us. I know some of you when we ask who then will condemn us some of you are condemning yourselves in your minds right now because that's what we do because that's how we've been taught because there's something about the Mennonite way that this is what we view humility as 
who dares accuse us, whom God has chosen as his own. That's strong language. Next time you condemn yourself in your heart or in your mind, think about that. Who dares accuse us whom God has chosen for his own? Paul answers, no one. For God himself has given us right standing with himself. Who then will condemn us? Who then will condemn us? No one, he says. For Christ Jesus died for us and was raised to life for us and he is sitting in the place of honor at God's right hand. And then he says this, pleading for us. This comes back to us being our own worst enemies again, doesn't it? We condemn ourselves when God doesn't condemn you. We, uh, we memorize John 3.16 all the time as kids, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. But then we, we really quickly forget verse 17 where it says, for he did not come into the world to condemn the world but to save it. It's like, oh yeah. Right? We like John 3.16 and all of that but we, we forget that, right, God isn't a condemning God that we don't always connect these two, that somehow we, yet we have salvation, but somehow he's also condemning us because we're bad. And yeah, we have sinned, but he gave us right standing with himself through the blood of his own son. So Paul says, who dares accuse us whom God has chosen for his very own? Hmm. Don't be your own worst enemy. Friends, be found faithful by God. We have so many, so many difficulties in our lives all around. Let's not make our lives more difficult by being our own worst enemy. Let's get to the work that God has called us to. Let's get to the worship that God has called us to. And that's what the story is all about. The people coming back after their time in exile to return to worship. Despite facing these enemies all around. And that's one of the really beautiful things about this story, actually, is after God sent Haggai and Zechariah to the people, despite their having stopped for years, God said, start now. You need to start. And they did. And the people said, who gave you permission to start? And they just said, God told us to. And they kept going. And they're like, well, we're, we're going to go talk to, the, talk to the king about this. And then they did. And boy, were they sorry that they did because then they had to pay for the whole bill. And that's one of those beautiful and wonderful and kind of delicious sort of endings to that story where these people who were the enemies this whole time and then God says all right people time to get back to work and then they listen they step out in faith and then these enemies once again are right on their doorstep 
and then they go to the king trying to get them in trouble. But God was at work in King Darius' life. And then King Darius orders that these enemies, these enemies would be put in their place and God's temple would be built and the people would return to worship once again. Let us be faithful. Let us be found faithful by God. Let us return to the worship that God calls us to. The Lord is certainly faithful in his dealings with us. Let's pray.